Thank you for joining us. My name is Joe Carr, and I'm happy to welcome you to this Providence College podcast. Our guest today is Brian Lamoureux, a Providence College School of Business practitioner, faculty member, and management. Also a practicing attorney, Brian teaches courses in business law, and he has a particular specialty in legal issues related to social media. He's a PC graduate from the class of 1994. We talked about the positives and negatives of the digital world we live in, the politics and policy of net neutrality, and the thing that motivated him to come from behind to win an important tennis match back when he was a Hendrickson High School Hawk. We started by talking about his busy work life, balancing two important and demanding jobs. Brian, thank you for joining us. So tell us about a typical day in your life. You've got a lot going on. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, yeah, my days are busy, but they're fun. Um, the, my two labors of love are teaching and practicing law. So typical day is uh, wake up bright and early with my son, who is an early riser, which is always good for, for me to start the day. And uh, I'm in the office uh, at the law firm at about quarter of seven. Uh, have those magic two hours before other people start to come in and uh, work through uh, the afternoon and then get to campus, teach four o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And on Fridays, I'm teaching at 2.30. So the day starts uh, usually with lawyering and often ends with teaching. <laughs> what does it mean to be a practitioner, a faculty member? What kind of perspectives do you bring from that, that point of view? Sure, a practitioner faculty member is a, is a relatively new term on campus. It was um, formally adopted, I think about a couple of years ago. And it just refers to those faculty members who are uh, practicing in the field, either in accountancy or in my case in law. And so we bring into the classroom some real world practical experience. Uh, so that's where the term comes from. It's kind of hard to remember what it was like before we were wired in, in this digital world that we live in. I can't really remember what work was like before email and things like that. Change has been incredible and it's been fast. On balance, is this a good thing or a bad thing for us? Uh, well, it's good for me because it gives me a lot to talk about, and I have clients who get in trouble and do things that they wish they didn't do. So it's it's good for job security. Um, it gives me some interesting uh, insights to talk about uh, in my classes. I think as a society, though, uh, I, I've seen I've seen some problems and some concerns. I think the the evolvement or the evolving technology is outpacing our ability to handle it. So I think in some ways we are moving too fast for what we as humans can handle. Uh, I think in some ways we're becoming less human and dependent upon systems and apps and programs and electronic touches and not human touches. So I think it's a complicated question uh, in drilling down into different contexts in medical uh, situations, for example. Is it a good thing that doctors can uh, FaceTime with patients in remote areas and diagnose illnesses? Of course it is, that's positive. Is it a good thing that a student roams the halls of a high school with a video camera and, you know, taking images and videos of a high school or in a uh, situation um, that could get them in trouble because they upload pictures to Dropbox, which we saw up in Barville uh, in Rhode Island. So it, it, it goes both ways. So I think the humanity of the question is where the real answer lies, not necessarily in the technology itself. One of the things you have done is given some of your time to schools and to uh, children to help them understand how to deal with cyberbullying and the effect that can have on them and strategies for managing that. Can you tell us a little more about that? Why do you, have you taken that extra responsibility on it and what has been your impact? Yeah, that's been some of the more uh, fun times I've had when I've been out uh, giving presentations either to middle school students 
Uh, I, I've never been as nervous as I was when I was at Wyman Elementary School teaching uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders sixth graders about how to um, be safe online. And it, it just it just demonstrated to me how tricky it can be at that age. Uh, another fun moment was I was at a high school uh, in Providence where I uh, gave a, a talk on the difficulties associated with um, Snapchat and how the technology that Snapchat uh, evolved in such a way that students were not appreciating that they, even though they thought the images went away, they uh, were much chagrined to learn that uh, someone had figured out how to keep snaps forever and to recover them even after they'd been deleted. But I was in front of those students who were 15, 16 years old, and I said, even if that technology permitted the Snapchat images to be deleted, what would prevent someone from holding up another phone while that picture was temporarily on the other phone and taking a picture? And their eyes lit up. And that underscored for me that their brains have not developed in such a way at that age where they appreciated that. That's when it really resonated to me that the technology has been outpacing our children's development and often our adults. Do you find that those audiences are open to this kind of communication? Or is there some resistance and some kind of feeling that maybe, well, I don't really want to hear this. I want to manage my life my own way. Yeah, I think one of the things I did early, um, and, and I learned quickly as a lawyer, that clients don't like to hear no. Clients like to hear how. So to be a successful lawyer, you have to walk into a, a problem and tell the client what they can do, not that they should stop doing what they want to do. So I've taken that technique into my social media and digital media and cyberbullying uh, work and really approached it more from a tactical level, recognizing the phones aren't going away. Snapchat and Instagram and all of this online uh, activity that's happening is not going away. So I think my goal is to raise awareness, to add some thought to the conversation as to not necessarily how you do things, but why are you doing things online and uh, some best practices. And that's really where I've tried to carve the niche. How do you use social media? Oh, that's a bad question because um, I don't like the answer. Um, so I'm on Twitter. I had an experiment a few years ago where I gave up Twitter for Lent and it was a wonderful 40 days. <laughs> Uh, and I really haven't been active on it yet. I read, um, but I'm not active posting because uh, I really don't, I'm a very private person. I don't like to post uh, about my personal life, uh, but I also feel that I'm, I'm like a cardiologist who's gone vegan. Um, I just know so much about privacy issues and what's being stored about us algorithmically and how it can be used against us that um, I've really purposefully and thoughtfully refrain from jumping into the fray. I do enough to stay on top of the technology, uh, but personally for me, it's not for me. We have a dynamite LinkedIn profile, so I mean, you're doing something important there, and that that's a, sort of a different kind of a thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, LinkedIn I use very tactically just to stay uh, abreast and a few, uh, up to date with the people that I interact with professionally. Uh, and I think I would be a hypocrite to tell my students that they need to have a robust LinkedIn profile and me not have one. So I think LinkedIn is the exception to that rule. When it comes to social media, what what are some of the legal considerations that people should know about? Things that they may not think of from that legal perspective, just a typical social media user. Well, I think the first thing I'd, I think someone needs to keep in mind is the permanency 
of social media and the and, and and the notion that you put something out there and it's not an offhand comment in a bar that someone might forget. It's something that's permanent. So I think the permanency issue is important. I think the viral nature is important, um, that what you say to four people or 40 people can possibly go viral. So I think, I think that's the second consideration. The third consideration is the fact that it is social media, in my view, is a poor method of communication because it lacks context, it lacks emotion, it lacks feeling, it lacks tone of voice, it lacks eye contact. And when you remove all of those human characteristics of communication and put it into bits and bytes and words and 140 characters, uh, we, I can name dozens of instances where that's caused a problem. So I think social media is a tool. It's not uh, something that is uh, going to be the preferred method of communication, I think, for anyone. And it's just something that has to be looked at in a way where uh, folks recognize the danger and the concern of uh, either oversharing, privacy issues, which is in a whole other kettle of fish. And those problems can become legal problems, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, you have. Uh, I've seen defamation cases. I've seen divorce cases. I've seen uh, various cases in my practice where the case starts off with a Facebook print printout that gets slid under HR's door or it gets anonymously mailed to someone. Uh, you know, I can't go into specifics and, and client issues, but uh, there, I would say that 25% of the cases I see in my employment practice have social media, a texting, or an online component. And this dialogue that's going on with sexual harassment uh, generally, um, I've, I saw start years ago with social media and texting. Because uh, sexual, sexual harassment, for example, um, employers used to handle that by walking around the office and paying attention to what was happening. Well, now with texting and devices and online activity, employers are having more difficulty tracking that. And I think that's a real problem. Let's turn to the subject of net neutrality. Start, please, by giving us a good definition. Uh, well, first of all, net neutrality is the absolute worst term out to understand what it means. Uh, so whoever came up with it, I knew what they meant, um, but it's a very difficult term. So I'll do my best. Net neutrality is uh, essentially the notion that what is available for us to consume on the internet is out there free of any interference, what's called throttling or preferred speed or placement in such a way that everyone has free and equal access to the content. So that net neutrality is a good term. So the term itself means, at least in my view, that it is a free and open internet and what you put out there content-wise isn't discriminated against, it's not preferred, it's not placed on page two of Google, and the content is neutral. So whether you're paying for that content or not paying for that content, that information is out there and the market figures out where it gets placed. These rules that were um, repealed by the FCC recently so actually net neutrality was only adopted in 2015 and then in December of 2017 reversed by the FCC. Kind of a short-term thing, huh? Well, the concept has been floating around since 05 with George W. Bush. Uh, the, the rules that you're referring to were indeed uh, formally in place in 2015, but we had this notion of a free and open internet longer than that. And the reason I think that's important is because that underscores that this is really not a political issue in my view. So we've seen a Republican president, a Democratic president, and now a Republican president again, 
So I think the issue is more, um, it's, it's, it's more nuanced than saying it's a Republican-Democrat issue. It's a market issue. It's a government regulation issue. And uh, so we've only really had, quote, two years of the rule, as you indicated. So uh, it's interesting to see what the FCC's uh, decision is going to have on the, in, on the Internet, so to speak, because uh, I see some real interesting legal and uh, shareholder issues coming down the pike with how large broadband companies react to it. What are the potential ramifications, implications for a typical Internet user? Well, it depends where you are. So I'll, I'll give you an, a, a statistic, which is interesting. About half of the U.S. households only have one broadband provider. So to the extent someone says, well, let the market figure it out, that would make sense if you had the ability to change providers in a heartbeat. But when you only have one provider for the Internet, maybe there's an argument the government should be around to make sure that you're not locked into that uh, one provider of content. That's one issue. The second issue is if I'm a shareholder of a, of a broadband company, my goal as a shareholder is to ensure that my investment earns the highest maximum legal amount of return on my investment. So if I'm on the board of that broadband company, I want to make sure that I maximize shareholder wealth legally. Well, how do I do that? I take advantage of every possible open avenue to increase revenue and to ensure that uh, we price our products in a way to maximize revenue. Why, why is that a concern? Well, shareholders might sit back and wait and see what these broadband providers do. And if they don't do enough to maximize revenue under the repeal of the net neutrality rules, they might sue these companies for breach of their duties to go out there and squeeze as much out of the economy as possible because you should be pricing your products in a way to maximize revenue. I think we're going to see that if these rules stay off the table. Uh, and it's going to be just really fascinating to see how these companies react to it because the broadband companies have been smart so far. They're telling us nothing's going to change. There's not going to be anything that is going to be a problem. You're not going to notice it. I think time will tell. As a lawyer, I'm sure you're not in the business of predicting what will happen in court, but there are several legal challenges in play uh, with respect to the 2017 uh, FCC decision and also some potential action in the U.S. Senate. Do you see any likelihood of any of that being successful? Well, I think the congressional action uh, under what's called the Congressional Review Act is going to be unsuccessful. Uh, the, the Senate has, uh, the Congressional Review Act, just in a nutshell, allows Congress to take an act of a executive, um, you know, like the, the FCC, and undo it in Congress through some simple majority vote. The Senate might get there because uh, I think Susan Collins of Maine will be voting with the Democrats. But even if the Senate passes that, uh, they have an uphill battle in the House. And then if that passes, President Trump would have to sign it, and we know he won't. So I think the congressional approach is important for rhetorical purposes to get the debate out there, uh, which leads us to the legal challenges. The legal challenges have already started. Um, there are vastly complex regulatory rules, which I will not bore you with, uh, but they've started. And uh, I think they're going to start in earnest once the FCC formally publishes the summary of the rule in the Federal Register, which would be the green light to start the federal lawsuits under what's called, interestingly, a lottery system, where people who are upset by this rule get placed into a multi-district federal court litigation lottery for the opportunity to be a claimant. It's just fascinating. Um, unfortunately, though, 
the standard to overturn executive action is very high. You have to show essentially that what the FCC did was arbitrary, capricious, or in excess of their statutory authority. Courts have held for decades that that's a very high burden to meet. So I'm afraid to say that I think the answer is probably political and not legal. It'll be in the news for a long time to come, so I'm sure we'll be able to follow it closely. And those are good insights, and and we appreciate you sharing those perspectives. Let's talk a little bit about your students. So the students who are in college now have been in the digital world their entire lives. Your students come here very familiar with all the technology and the apps and everything else. But do you find that they're also uh, aware of the perils and the challenges that can come along with being in a society that communicates this way? I do. I think um, maybe if you asked me that question five years ago, I'd have a different answer. But I think given that um, I've seen my students evolve and given that I've started teaching a uh, class in our MBA program called Digital and Social Media in the Business Environment, I've become very attuned to the um, maturity that our students are starting to show uh, through an awareness of the pitfalls and through, I think, a recognition that they need to understand how to balance this technology with how they live their lives. This week when I was teaching and asking my students to not text during class, I say, I listen, I know I have the itch. It's, it's the itch and we all have it. And I need you to put the itch and not scratch the itch for two and a half hours because it's going to be an important business skill at, at a meeting to not scratch the itch, to not have the phone on the table. So let's start now and let's try to get through it together. It's almost like a self-help group um, because I share it too. I have my phone on the podium. Uh, so I, my students are aware of it. They're not, um, they're not blind to it. And I, I think that they recognize uh, how powerful it can be. And uh, I try to weave throughout my semester legal stories and current events on social and digital media that emphasize that for them. Let's talk a little bit about your PC experience. Step away from your work for a minute or two because you have some interesting uh, stories to share, including the one about how you found out you were accepted to PC. And that was a, a big day kind of all the way around, wasn't it? That was fun. I remember it. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time. I was actually in the middle of a tennis match at Hendricken, and my mom was there watching. She had the mail. I was losing the match. I remember exactly who I was using, losing it to. We were playing against... Uh, Mount St. Charles, and I was playing against a, uh, a a player, Jeff, who was ambidextrous. He had no backhand. He had two forehands, and I was losing spectacularly. My mom, um, during the middle of the match or in between sets, told me she had a letter from PC. I opened the letter up, saw that I got accepted, and was absolutely thrilled because it was my top choice, and I came back and won the match. So I'm I'm giving credit to my acceptance on winning that match. You still play tennis? Uh, I don't. Uh, I ended up uh, having some hip surgery a few years ago through some old hockey injuries. So tennis is probably the worst thing I could do for that hip. Speaking of hockey, you brought with you an important uh, souvenir. That's an intramural championship t-shirt. Those are very highly valued in the PC community. You were on a championship hockey team when you were a student, huh? Uh, I I was, and uh, it is a purple champion t-shirt from 1990 that I still have and has moved with me all over the place. And uh, when I show it to my students, they love it because uh, it is a piece of history given the fact that most of them were born in 1997. Intramural is important then and still today, as uh, I'm sure your students talk to you about all the time. It's to the point where PCTV, the 
a video production uh, club, if you will, produces a sports center like television program about intramural with intramural highlights and and uh, results and things like that. So it's really an important part of what this place is all about. And so it's so funny to see that and hear that and just how uh, passionate my students are. Uh, and, you know, I, I see the T-shirts that they wear and I ask them what sport. And my favorite moment a few years ago is I guess Father Cuddy, when he was here, had his five-on-five basketball championship T-shirt framed. So I think that's my next step for this T-shirt. Coming soon, that's for sure. Um, You are really a part of this community in a lot of ways, and including uh, taking the important step of moving close to the campus. And you said that, told me the other day that that's had kind of an important impact on your family's life and in a very positive way. Yeah, so it, it's funny. Um, when I when I talk about uh, my, my two jobs and how I balance those, none of that could happen without uh, an enormous amount of understanding, patience, and hard work uh, that my wife, who is also a PC alum, class of 94 and MBA 2000, uh, she devotes to keeping everything going with my son at home. And moving to campus has been just a great move for us. We, we, are, we are literally down the street from campus which gets us on on the weekends. We get to go to women's basketball games, and uh, I'm home five minutes after my class ends. So that's been a great move. The college relies on its alumni to provide valuable support, and, and mostly in the form of volunteerism, and you've been a good example of that, serving on the Alumni Association board and doing a lot of other things to help your alma mater achieve its goals. Can you share some thoughts on, on why you do that and what kind of satisfaction you've received from being a volunteer? Sure. Um, I, I love this place. Uh, this place was very important to me. Uh, when I was in my formative years, I remember distinctly getting financial aid. Uh, my dad was a mailman. I was the youngest of five. And without financial aid from this school, I wouldn't be able to do uh, what I'm doing. So I remember those grants. I remember those meetings in Harkins in the financial aid office with John Canning. Uh, so th- I have a very, very important soft spot for PC. So there's, there's really no way I could ever give any of it all back. Uh, so any opportunity to uh, sit on the alumni council, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed, or to volunteer my time and, and talk to students or to otherwise uh, participate on campus is always something I'm going to be interested in doing. Uh, PCs of love. When you look out in your classroom, do you see uh, younger examples of yourself sometimes, people you identify with because you know they come from similar, they have similar stories? I see more organized, uh, diligent capable students than I was. Uh, it's just, and I said this to my class on Tuesday, the quality of business student that I've seen, even over my tenure here, between the preparation, the attitude, the writing, the curiosity has just been uh, increasing over the years. So I, I don't really see my young self because when I was back then, I really wasn't, I think, as, uh, as put together as my students are now. Uh, but I'm sure they feel the same way about themselves. But I'm really proud to be uh, part of their development. Just one more question before we wrap up and back to the realm of your work, Brian. When it comes to government regulation and digital communication, what what do you see in the future? Will the government be, it would seem, necessarily more involved? And will uh, that relationship be evolving to a significant extent? I think the government has an important role to play with respect to privacy. I don't think the government has a important role or a necessary role relating to infrastructure, content management, investment, free market principles. So let me go back to privacy. We all walk around today knowing that HIPAA, 
protects our health information. I cannot go get your health information unless I'm authorized to do so. Your doctor cannot disclose your health information unless you authorize your doctor to do so. I'm very concerned that we are leaving what I call digital breadcrumbs out on the internet, whether it be the places we've checked into, the um, posts that we've made, or the tweets that we've sent, or the uh, information that we've left online. I'm very concerned that there is, and I know there is a market out there for companies to gather that information, to sweep it up, to run it through algorithms, and to draw conclusions about what people might be a good credit risk, they might be a good um, car auto insurance risk, they might be a good employee. So I think Congress really should be looking strongly at considering protections for that data to be not used in a way that's discriminatory or is unfair. And I think the best analogy I have is that I think we need the equivalent of a, di of a HIPAA for digital information. And that's where if I, had, if I was a policy advisor on Capitol Hill, that's the conversation I'd be driving. Well, this is certainly an interesting subject. We will uh, be checking back in with you from time to time because it's evolving so fast and it's so important to all of us. Brian Lemerell, thank you for your time and for all you do for PC and for its students. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the Providence College podcast at all the usual places, and they're available on the college's YouTube channel. Feedback is welcome at podcast at providence.edu. Thanks to our producer, Chris Judge. I'm Joe Carr. Until next time.